You're listening to the Modern Web Podcast. For more podcasts, videos, and events, find us online at modern-web.org or follow us on Twitter at modern.web. That's M-O-D-E-R-N-D-O-T-W-E-B. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Modern Web Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Osell. I'm an architect at this.labs. Today, we are very excited to sit down and talk with Simon McDonald about Enhance and the future of building functional web apps. Uh, Simon is the head of developer experience at Begin. Simon, how are you doing today? I'm doing great today, Rob, and thanks for having me on. Now, before we talk about Enhance and and functional web apps and what those are, um, I wanted to take a moment to just talk about your role, head of developer experience. Now, this has been something that I've always wondered but been afraid to ask, which is to say, whose developer experience are you the head of? Because certainly you must work with some very talented developers at Begin um, and on behalf of other talented developers out in the industry. So is it both? And if so, like, how do you handle those two different roles? Yeah, and um, unfortunately, we have no talented developers at Begin. That's one of our secrets is that we have beginners all across the board. So we take that kind of beginner mindset. And when it comes to being the uh, head of developer experience, it's more focused on the external folks. Um, So I need to advocate for people coming in, trying some of our uh, software for the first time. So anytime that there's anything involved in SDKs around things, documentation, support, blogging, all of that stuff kind of falls under my purview. And I know that, you know, one of the things that you talk about a lot is how it's a difficult balance, developer experience and user experience. So how do you try to walk that line? Um, And have you had instances where you've maybe realized that you've gone too far in one direction? Or how would you even know if you had gone too far in that direction? Yeah, well, that's that's a that's a can of worms that we could open. And certainly, <laughs> I personally think that the industry over at least the past five, if not the last 10 years has um, over corrected towards developer experience and kind of left users a little bit behind. Um, we've we've gotten to this situation where we've made building websites so easy for developers, but we've ended up layering JavaScript on top of JavaScript on top of JavaScript. And it's like, oh, well, CSS, that's a perfectly great solution, but let's put our CSS into JavaScript, thereby adding more JavaScript to things. And when we have super modern phones and computers and a great internet connection, you don't see those issues. But a lot of our customers, a lot of our users don't have, you know, an iPhone 14 or they don't have, you know, a 5G network. So they're running into some pretty poor user experience. So one of the things that we've recently tried to do is, well, not even so recently, but one of the things that we really try to do is to look at this thing from an HTML first perspective and to make sure that anything that we deliver to our users will work if there's something goes wrong with JavaScript. So let's not depend on shipping you know, three megabytes of JavaScript to the client in order for the web application to work. Let's make sure it works with HTML first, then progressively enhance it with some JavaScript. Great. I mean, this kind of walks us into introducing this topic, and we should probably do that before we get too much uh, further, because there are probably some people or a lot of people listening that are wondering, you know, what what were those things that we said in the introduction? So would you mind introducing everybody to kind of what is Enhance? Um, and if you need to, like, what are sort of functional web apps and just sort of this paradigm that we're going to be talking about today? Sure, that sounds good. Um, I'll start with uh, functional web apps. Um, So Begin as a company has been building web applications for a number of years now. And the term functional web apps came out of the experiences that we've had building these web apps. We found that there's an architecture pattern that works quite well for us, and we've coined it the functional web app. Uh, And basically, there's three pillars to a functional web app. and, And the first one is it's built using functions. And so we use uh, cloud functions in order to output HTML directly down the wire to our customers. Um, These cloud functions are backed by a database and with modern cloud databases, which are extremely performant, uh, you're seeing like any time, like four milliseconds in order to fetch data from a cloud-based database. And then that's passed to your function, which can immediately uh, put the HTML down the wire so that any kind of personalization that you need to do uh, is super quick. Uh, And then finally, um, we use, uh, sorry, 
cloud, it's cloud formation, but infrastructure as code. Um, that's the third pillar. And we want to make sure that anything that we do is reproducible at any point in time. Um, there's a really great book, and I, I think we may talk about books later, um, but it's the Phoenix Project. Uh, it's a, a Gene Kim, Jez Humble, a number of other people, but it's a, it's a fictional version of a company uh, getting into infrastructure as code and CICD. Uh, but as well, there's a book called Accelerate, which is all of the data behind this thing that really proves out how important CICD and infrastructure as code is to high performing organizations. Uh, but the other benefit of infrastructure as code is that everything that I've done to deploy my website is checked into source code control. It's all completely reproducible. So if I have to revert back to a previous known state, I can do that. Um, a lot of other things you get into this, uh, what we call click ops, <laughs> and you, that's where multiple people have access to the uh, deployment console and they go in and they tweak a few parameters. And before you know, you've had this drift between what was deployed and what's configured. So then when you have to back something out or make some changes, you run into a bunch of problems because it's what you have, what you think you deployed and what you actually have running in production is not the same. And that, that can cause a ton of problems. Yeah, and it's so funny too. I, I know we've <clears throat> teams I've been on have really gotten on this idea of infrastructure, uh, you know, this code base infrastructure piece as well. Because, you know, in the past, I don't remember feeling like the systems were that fragile. You know, maybe, maybe you had that staff and that team that knew how it all worked. And, you know, you never feel more exposed as a developer than when you go into something that was sort of is being hand managed and you break it. And yeah. you don't know how to go backwards or forwards. You're just sort of stuck and nothing's working. Um, that is a flop sweat that I would hope that maybe with these tools, no developer will have to experience again in the future. Um, but it is, uh, you know, it doesn't take many examples of that before you, you know, become a, a big fan of, of technologies like this. Yeah. And, you know, as a, as a developer, I want everything to be in source code control. So at least I, I can version it and I can know exactly what's happening. But also um, what we've seen in the industry over the past number of years where there's more downward pressure to have teams handling their own infrastructure. Um, so you can't really, you know, have a dedicated team to keep all of these services running for you. It's like it's now all of those savings have been passed on to the individual development teams. And if they don't have the right tooling in place to prevent these problems, they can, as I like to say, shoot themselves in a the foot with a bazooka. So it's not that it's not great. So I know that um, you, you have to answer this every single time that you bring up this topic. So apologies for rehashing it here, but I know that people listening for the first time are going to naturally flow to the things which are um, taking up the most amount of oxygen in the space right now, and that would be Jamstack solutions. Next being one of the foremost of those, um, you know, Gatsby before it. Uh, you know, Remix is a little bit different than that, but it is taking up a lot of attention, um, especially as of as of the time that we're recording this right now. They just announced some big news today. <laughs> but you know, how do you kind of contrast this approach with those, just to help people kind of position these technologies relative to each other? Yeah, sure. So I like Jamstack approaches like Gatsby et al. Um, your server side, sorry, your static site generating. So basically uh, your website, all of your pages, uh, they're done at build time and they're deployed to a static bucket where you can load things from. Uh, then if there's any kind of personalization that has to happen, that's done through an API call to your backend uh, from the client side of things. Um, when we're talking about an enhanced application yeah, using HTML first, and it, it's not just enhanced that's doing this. Other companies or other frameworks like Remix and Eleventy and Astro use the same sort of thing. Uh, and that's you're doing server-side rendering of your HTML. And particularly the way that we do it is when a user hits a route, we're going to generate the HTML for them. We're going to personalize it based upon their logged in session token so that we know we're going to send the data that they actually need at that point in time down. So when the initial HTML loads for them, it's already working. So there's no waiting for an additional uh, API call to the back end in order to grab that personalized information. So that's it's. <laughs> That's kind of the difference I would look at between um, an enhanced approach versus a, a Jamstack approach. Now, I've built a lot of Jamstack applications as well, and you know, certainly, it's I'm a right tool for the right job type of person. Uh, so there are 
situations where I would reach for a Jamstack approach over uh, an HTML first or an enhanced server-side rendered approach. Uh, but we found in a lot of cases, even some of the use cases that we would you know, initially reach for a Jamstack side of things, um, like documentation websites, uh, it, it works fast enough that we don't really have to, to worry about static site generating things. I know people that have heard of this kind of, um, I don't know if I want to call it a revolution, a swing back, uh, a, a new phase, this uh, idea of the server-side rendering, if either in this functional approach that you're describing or in similar veins to it. A lot of people have said, oh, look at the the JavaScript people reinventing Rails or reinventing PHP or reinventing .NET and Java backends. How do we understand how we've evolved from those to to this solution? Like, where, what are the trade-offs or the benefits we're getting now from the, the years of learning since, uh, you know, maybe those technologies were the only option for building websites? Yeah, and certainly the pendulum swings between all of these, uh, you know, do we client-side render, do we server-side render? And, and over time, we kind of swing back and forth. Uh, and we we pick up the learnings from the client side rendering frameworks. We pull them into the server side rendering frameworks, and vice versa. It's, I mean, that's just kind of the way that technology works. Um, I made an, uh, I did a talk, uh, you know, 2020, I believe it was, and it was looking back at how technologies, you know, we for for old folks like myself uh, who worked with early Java, and there was this thing called the Abstract Window Toolkit, uh, which was this thing where you had a very thin layer of Java code that was calling to the native uh, UI component, whether it would be a button or a spinner or whatever. Um, and that was terrible. It was not performant. It didn't work at all. Uh, it was quickly replaced in the next version of Java by the uh, Swing uh, Toolkit for building web or for building UIs. Um, and you fast forward to like, what, 10, 15 years later, and if you've used React Native, um, uses the same technology approach as uh, the Abstract Window Toolkit back in early Java days. So we get into these situations <laughs> where, you know, what was a bad idea once, well, the constraints have changed, so now it becomes a very workable idea. And so that's a very long example. Uh, but when it comes to, you know, why why we're like kind of flipping back to the server-side rendering side of things. Um, there's a couple of reasons that I think. And the first is that in the, you know, the PHP, the Rails days, uh, our backend databases that we're using were socket-based. Uh, the ability to create a new socket to that database, that is one of the most expensive things that you'll do uh, during you know, Rails or PHP development, uh, so much so that there was, you know, frameworks put in place to be able to do uh, pooling of sockets so that you could reuse those connections to the database, um, you know, but you would only be able to have X number of sockets to the database. And over time, you would send, you know, say 20 different queries across that socket, and then you would have to refresh the socket and which would you would get a penalty from that. Um, but now, with like I said earlier, with these modern cloud-based databases where uh, they're always available and the the amount of time that it takes you to fetch data from these, these databases has gotten down into the single-digit millisecond range, uh, there's there's no reason not to, to fetch the freshest data on every request instead of, you know, kind of doing uh, a server a static site generating type of thing. So that would be one of the first reasons. And I'm going to jump in with a question. Oh, no, I, I, I was just going to say that I, you know, one of the things I think is interesting is that people often view the swing back as a capitulation. But I always love to use the example from Sean Wang that these things aren't going back to everything that we had before, but an evolution. Um, and so we take we swing back, but with all of the lessons that we've learned. Um, so if we're swinging back to the server side rendered and maybe uh, towards away from single page applications being quite so dominant, we're coming back with you know a lot of developer experience lessons, a lot of the things that were painful to work with HTML coming with us as we swing back. And I, I always think that that's important for people to remember too uh, when we're doing this, that uh, anybody that you teleported forward in time you know, 15 years is not going to recognize the type of server-side rendering or the approaches or the techniques that we're using um, from what they were familiar with, certainly, um, you know, using early spring or similar technologies. 
Yeah, and that's a that's a really good point there. We we're building upon the experiences that we've had over the past, you know, 10, 15, 20 years in building web applications and everything is additive as we go along. You know, overemphasizing onto the client side rendering, we learned a lot of things from that that we can take back to doing server side rendering and I fully expect that some of these new frameworks like Enhance or Eleventy or Astro, uh, some of the lessons from them will get ported into things like React and Vue and Angular. So like you said, it's just, you know, each each thing informs the the next. Absolutely. So but yeah, I was okay. I was gonna say, you know, like another another reason I think we are flipping back more towards uh, server-side rendering, at least in some cases, uh, is the massive amount of JavaScript that we've started pouring into the client. Um, I mean, we're just, we're just building HTML strings. We, <laughs> um, we don't really need huge frameworks anymore to be able to do this kind of stuff. Um, like if you go back a bunch of years ago, we used jQuery all over the place. And jQuery made a ton of sense because we had these massive differences between the ways that browsers operated, whether it be IE, Firefox, Chrome, et cetera. Um, and over time, a lot of those differences um, went away. And so the reason for having jQuery on our page reduced. And so it's kind of the same thing with the our, us flipping from client-side rendering to server-side rendering. Frameworks like React and Vue, they did a great job of bringing this component model uh, to the web and building applications using the component model is fantastic and I love it, but we have web components in the browser. Like they're part of the platform now and I have to ask myself, do I need a framework to bring the component model to my application? And we don't really need that anymore. We can we can leverage what's in the browser and reduce our bundle sizes. And I was listening to Adi Asmani last week um, during Web Unleashed and his talk on the state of JavaScript in 2022. They, they found out that the most expensive thing, the, the biggest thing that takes up the most time uh, when loading your website is the execution of JavaScript. It's the, it's the biggest blocker that we have right now in the web. And a lot of things that we use JavaScript to do can be replaced by what's already in the platform. Um, over the past five years, the platform has gotten exponentially better. And while we were busy building applications using JavaScript frameworks, we kind of missed out on some of these things. But you know, if you take anything out of our conversation today, it would be you know just instead of immediately reaching for a, a framework when you're starting a new project, or if you want to test something out, like, you know, try just building it with the platform, just plain vanilla HTML, CSS, and some JavaScript in order to enhance things. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> um, I think that is probably the lesson that we've learned. But I think one of the things that has come of it for me, though, is that when it comes to reuse, I found that you know, some of the other approaches that people would suggest, even things that take you back in the direction of templated backends and server-side rendering, what I always find myself asking for is, well, yeah, but how will I define a reusable block of content? Like, what is what is that reusable block, right? What is the React component or, you know, whatever else the equivalent uh, for? And it sounds like with the approach that you're talking about that that's going to be um, uh, custom elements or web components, but... One of the issues that I've had or that people have had with web components is just the um, the API is fully functional, but it's not perfectly ergonomic uh, for developers. Sometimes it can be a little bit cumbersome to use. And so you've seen the rise of frameworks like Lit, uh, which have made that um, much more familiar to people that are doing other types of development, but you're still making web components. Kind of curious, how is there a wrapper that y'all put around custom elements and web components? Um, and how do you, you know, define those those blocks in, in the approaches that you're describing? Yeah, for us, we try to adhere as close uh, as closely as possible to like standard JavaScript. So we haven't put uh, a wrapper around our web components right now. Um, we are working on a, being able to progressively enhance the web components to to make dealing with uh, them a lot easier, but. Let me first talk about what enhances a little bit. Um, so enhance with 
does a number of things, but probably the most important thing is it allows you to server-side render your custom elements. Um, anybody who's used Web Components right now, they'll probably, you know, they've probably had some issues with it. One of the big things is your Web Component needs to run a JavaScript class and call the custom element define before it's available to your web page. So um, you will have these issues where you'll have this flash of unstyled content because the browser doesn't know what to do with the Web Component until it's loaded. Um, what we do with Enhance is on the, on the server side, we're going to take a look at your web component. We're going to expand the custom element into its HTML blocks so that when the string is sent down to the client, that custom element is already expanded. So if you have a footer, all of your, you know, your UL and your LI for all of your footer elements is already expanded. So the browser will automatically display what should be there. We're going to get it gets rid of that flash of unstyled content. And if JavaScript somehow fails to load because there's a network error or the person has got JavaScript turned off or, you know, you're on a you're at a, an airport and the airport is just messing with your entire browser experience, which I think we can all uh, understand what's going on there. Um, It'll still it'll still be viewable. It'll still be interactive because all of your custom everything that you need in your custom element is already there. Yeah, it's actually a really elegant approach for handling this, which I had seen when doing some research into uh, micro front ends, which leverage this technique a lot, uh, or at least the ones, the videos and things that I was reading about did it, where I first realized that you could kind of do this expansion. Um, but I know one of the challenges that people will often face when they do this is, or at least one of the things, the, the things that they raise is that to do with Shadow DOM that it can sometimes be difficult to server-side render uh, web components that are really leveraging Shadow DOM because the server-side libraries maybe struggle with uh, figuring out how to do that. We may or may not have time to define what Shadow DOM is, but is that a concern that isn't as important anymore? Or is this something that y'all work around somehow, like when you're server-side, when you're expanding these components? Yeah, that's a really good point. And what I like to tell people is uh, friends don't let friends use the Shadow DOM. Um, <laughs> It when when you have this ability to ex, to expand your custom elements on the server side, you'll find that your need uh, to use the shadow DOM uh, becomes a lot less at that point in time. Um, so, yeah, I would not when I'm building a web component, uh, I'm using you know the templates, the oh, sorry, like the the ability to do slots. I'm using the ability to keep the styles into the, in, the web component itself because you have that encapsulation, um, and being able to expand that custom element on the server. I don't I don't really have to reach for the shadow DOM that many times. Uh, in the case of when I, we actually do have to uh, reach for the shadow DOM, uh, because the custom element is already expanded, it's working, everything's fine, and then you progressively enhance your um, your, your web component using JavaScript using the shadow DOM at that point in time. So. We've already fixed the server side. We've already fixed the problem with server side rendering. And it's after the fact that your your shadow DOM kicks in after the uh, the client has loaded the JavaScript for your web component, and it can enhance things from that point. Very interesting. Now, one of the things which I hadn't had a chance to fully investigate is how you suggest people deploy these. So, as I understand it, we're going to be using a series of of cloud functions. Uh, or, or Lambda functions or whatever they're called in your framework or, or, or provider of choice uh, to, to do this. What are the best practices that you suggest for how to break up our applications? Um, you know, we may have several pages in our application, perhaps, you know, hundreds or dozens. Uh, do you suggest, you know, one endpoint, one page is, is one function or are there ways to group? Like what is, what is kind of best practices for how to handle this? Yeah, so you can use the enhanced framework um, by itself in order to uh, server-side render your, your web components. Uh, but we've got this kind of opinionated way of being able to create a new enhanced app. And, and people can't see me doing air quotes around enhanced app. But um, it's, it's set up so that you have your app folder. Uh, you go into the app folder, you'll have a pages folder. And then anything in the pages folder is just file-based routing 
you write plain HTML in there and the enhanced application will take care of displaying things. So you could have an index.html and about.html. You hit those URLs, it'll display things for you. Um, and then when you want to be able to reuse your, your custom elements under the app folder, you will have an elements folder. And that's where you drop in all of your custom elements that you're planning on using in the application. Um, the, other, the other fun thing about the, the pages, uh, you'll have access to a store. And the store is populated via API routes. And all you need to do is under app API, have a file or a path that matches your page. So if I want to pass data to app pages about.html, I would create a file app API about.mjs. And that is where I would fetch data from my database or from some third party source. And I would return that and it would immediately be available to the about.html page that I've written. And I could use that in all of the web components that are uh, contained within the about.html page. Yeah, let's let's stick in that both because I think I'm confused and maybe other people are let's, uh, the store thing, because I've 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 worked in a very complex set of, uh, well, basically an application, a web application that was built using uh, web components. And one of the big challenges we had was was sharing data. Um, and so we had uh, sort of retrofitted in <laughs> or sort of patched in, duct taped it to the side, uh, you know, like a Redux store or equivalent um, to the side and used it for our purposes. So for this store concept that you have, you know, I feel like this is going to be a common conversation with server-side rendering. <laughs> is this on the server or is this on the client or is it both? Uh, what is the scope of this store and where does it live and how long does it live when we're talking about building components that might use this data, like this about page that you're talking about? Right. So this, this, in this particular example that I talked about, the store is on the server side uh, and it lives as long as it takes in order to send the HTML down to the client. Um, once you get to the client, uh, what we have plans on releasing in the not too distant future is a client side store uh, that you'll be able to subscribe to changes for. So any of your web components, like say you're building a to-do application, uh, you would basically have your web component and say, oh, I subscribe to any changes to to-dos. So the store component will have any number of bits of data to it, uh, to-dos would be an array of things. And then my to-do list could say, hey, I want to hear about any changes to this. And so anytime that there's uh, the store is mutated, it will send out an event to tell all of the web components that are listening to that change that, that something has changed and they need to re-render themselves. Now, the benefit of having the server-side backend as well is that uh, we'll be able to set up a WebSocket between the client side and the server side so that if you have an application, say a chat application, where things are you know, happening in various different web browsers, that that new data can be sent down the WebSocket in real time to the store, which can then uh, send out its event to say, oh, hey, you know, Rob sent you a message and it's going to update the, the list of messages that you have in, in your chat application. That's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we are really close on that and it's, it's, it is fun. We have successful, like, again, all of these things that we are, are bringing out, it's like, oh, wait, we built all this stuff for ourselves and we've used it for years and it works really well. Now we just need to put it into a framework so that other people can benefit from it as well. Um, particularly in the first version of Begin, when you create a new application and it sends off the message to say, okay, we're, you've committed something, so it's gonna do a new build. And so the backend build service is sending updates to your client UI in the browser via a WebSocket and it's updating the UI as the new information comes in. And it's like, we use that all the time. That's like just part of our application. And we're like, you know, that's a pattern that other people could use too. And it's like, why don't we make that easier for folks? So, you know, a lot of this, a lot of this stuff is just around the corner from us right now. So other than this uh, perspective solution that you're talking about now, how else is sort of like a session state managed, you know, things that in single page applications, right, people aren't even aware they have to manage because they just things are resident in memory, right? And they oh, I have my Redux store, everything the user's done since they first logged on the page is all here in some, some capacity. 
are are you using primarily cookies as that method of transportation? Is it caching on the back end? Is it a combination of both? Is is the data being pushed back into the database somehow? Like how how do you structure these apps or recommend that people um, handle sessions in 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 their enhanced apps? Uh, it depends on the data. I mean, uh, we are sure. definitely using session-based cookies uh, for authentication information. Uh, and so as you travel from page to page, because on the server-side rendering things, things are stateless. Um, so we need to know who's logged in in order to be able to send down the personalized information. Uh, so that's you know one of the, the main things that we use for the session-based cookies type of thing. Uh, but when it comes to other data, um, Say if you're building a to-do application, we're going to push that information back to the server so that it is stored in your cloud database. So it'll be available the next time that you uh, log into your to-do app. Um, but when you're working with the to-do app, to -do app you know, the, the data is local to your, your client as well. So um, things will... When when the WebSocket approach comes out, it'll make life a lot easier to synchronize the store between the client and the server. Um, right now, we we don't have that, but things are still working quite well. Uh, just even from the fact that it is blazingly fast just to request a new page and render the HTML uh, out of out of a cloud storage database. Great. Um... Can you talk a little bit about like the templating? I think a lot of people always are curious, you know, what comes out of one of these components. Um, it's HTML, <laughs> uh, yeah. kind of in more ways than one, uh, using sort of the, H the HTML library, the tag templates uh, approach is, is what I saw. Um, can you kind of describe a little bit about how you, you know, how you said about, especially from a developer experience standpoint, b both the structure of, do you call them components? like? The, the wrapper around the HTML statement, as well as the things that you define inside of it um, and where you put like dynamic code, for example, if you were going to really have a full custom element. Can you describe kind of how you arrived at this setup um, for, for uh, how people write these things? Yeah, sure. Um, so the we do call them components. Uh, that's basically what they are. Um, so you can debate whether it's a server-side or a client-side component. Um, from the the very base, maybe you need to have a header and the header is not gonna change on the client side type of things. So you have this function uh, you, and it's going to call our enhances tag template literal, which will look through all of the string that you pass it in order to expand any kind of custom elements. Um, so you could have your H1 in there with um, an attribute that you pass into the function and it just drops this one tag to uh, to the the stream that's going back to the client, um, so that would be the simplest case that you could possibly use. Um, but then you start to build on things where you're like, okay, well, wait a minute, I need I need to style this H1 because I only want to have uh, this H1 is red. All the other H1s on my page want them to be the, the normal color, but I want to override it in this case. So besides passing the HTML back, you can put a style tag in there and you can scope the style directly to that component. Um, and you can use um, like the host CSS selector in order to be able to say like, hey, I want to anything under the host is what I want to be able to, to style properly. Uh, and so then you're, you're building up, not only do we have a custom element, now we have custom element with styling, um, and then the third step is, okay, now once we get it to the page, I want to add some sort of interactivity. I want to add some, some JavaScript at that point in time. Uh, and that's where you would add a script tag. And in the script tag, you can write it directly in the tag template literal. You can just write a web component, just like you would in any other, you know, environment. It's just plain web components from, you know, just JavaScript. Um, and that's where you would start, you know, you would have your constructor and on your connection callback, you would start adding your event listeners so that you could add this kind of interactivity. But you don't, if you don't need that, you don't need to add that tag in. So if you were doing, you know, purely a header tag, which doesn't need any interactivity, you can skip the script tag. Or if you're doing something where it's a, it's a layout component, you can skip the script tag as well because you're just slotting things into your, your different layouts. Um, so you can, you can build up from like very simple, you know, UI only based components all the way up to interactive components. 
Um, I recommend that if you're starting to build these more advanced components with a script tag in them, uh, if you're doing anything, uh, it, having the tag template liberal, most um, UIs will be able to highlight the JavaScript for you. Um, but in depending on how you have things set up, it may all look like one giant string. And so you'll be missing out on some of the uh, nice developer features that we have in our UIs. So you may want to actually have your script tag point to another file, which is just a standard JavaScript file, which you put your web component class definition in there. And so that way you would get all of the, you know, the type hinting, all of the autocomplete features that you would normally have if your editor is, is not set up to find JavaScript inside an HTML tag template. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to see this model of component definition um, take off uh, because I feel like for a long time now, component has meant this long running agent that was going to be sort of like an engine, almost like a game development thing, like on a tick loop, you just kind of expected it was constantly uh, acting. Uh, but now with stuff like you're talking about with solid is another example of this, where you start to think of components as being like builders, constructors that, that uh, culminate in the construction of a thing that is either static or dynamic. It can be whichever, but the component itself is the, is more the creator than necessarily the uh, perpetually living agent that keeps re-rendering in a in a client-side environment and i'm i think that it's been hard for people because we've been so programmed for so many years to think of it the other way that, that component was sort of co-opted to be that i mean I'm, I'm excited to see when people start to break from that paradigm and start to understand this version that you're talking about like i said the one from solid and others that are like it i'm kind of curious to see what people get inspired to do and, and you know, what, what people really think about this paradigm. Cause it's, it's been really fascinating to see. And I'm sure you feel the same way, obviously working on it, uh, that this is kind of a, you know, a, a cool new way to think of what a component actually means. Yeah. It's, it's been a lot of fun. I mean, besides, you know, working on enhance, um, I have to scratch my own edge. So as a, as a Canadian, and I don't know if your listeners have figured that out yet, but I am Canadian and I can prove it about. Um, so that's people are probably laughing in their cars right now. Uh, but as a Canadian, I manage a hockey team. So every Friday night, me and my friends play hockey and I have to make sure that, you know, we have 20 skaters and two goalies. And um, one of the things I did to scratch my own itch was build a website that manages this for me. And when I initially started it, I was, I was like, okay, I'll build it with Enhance so I can, you know, drink, drink our own champagne type of thing. And as I was going along, I realized I didn't really need that much or like almost no JavaScript in this, uh, this web application. It's, it's wild how much I didn't need it. Uh, and, and to think that, you know, if I would have built this with React or Vue or some other thing, I would have a ton of JavaScript just to be able to render my UI on the client. Um, but there's almost zero bytes of JavaScript uh, getting dropped into the client. And I, I think right now the only thing I'm using it for is to dynamically display a menu. And I know that if I switch that to a checkbox uh, and then styled it properly, then I'd be able to get rid of that as well. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, 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 that's the part I'm super fascinated about with this last stage. Like, to me, that's a question of how far back the pendulum is going to go. Um, and again, not where back means a regression, just back towards the platform, I suppose you would say, is that there's been a lot of conversations in CSS going on um, I, I, uh, with like new checked inputs or checked false or whatever. They have a lot of new uh, APIs that they're developing. I know that the CSS community is discussing like, whoa, 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 do, yes, this makes the platform stronger, but do we want to put that much into CSS? Do we want to make it that potent? And so I think one of the things I'm super fascinated to figure out is where the pendulum stops, is if people um, are empowered by these tools and go so far back to that portion, or whether we stop a little bit short of that and find some way to use lighter weight, uh, either web, uh, you know, uh, web components, or even, you know, smaller versions of React or Solid or Quick or, you know, again, insert your, your framework of choice, um, something that's very small but can handle some of that dynamism that becomes like a jQuery, right? Like a little bit of a helper, you take a little bit of a hit to get a little bit of ergonomics on top of the platform. I don't know, do you have a thought on that? I'm, I'm super interested to see how far this swing is going to happen. Yeah, and... 
I want to make clear that I am not a no JavaScript person. Like I love JavaScript. Um, it's, you know, it's helped, you know, me immeasurably in my career. And, you know, I wouldn't say it's bought my host for me, but it's put a sizable down payment on it. Um, but it was a very interesting technical challenge for somebody who is so deep in the weeds with some of these other frameworks to be able to say like, hey, let me let me try to do this and try to use the minimal amount of JavaScript possible and being so pleasantly surprised that the platform had, you know, evolved so much in the last five, five years or so that I didn't need a lot. Um, so yeah, I don't think the pendulum is going to swing all the way back to let's just do everything in HTML and CSS. Uh, but what I am saying is you can do a lot of stuff in HTML and CSS these days that you don't need JavaScript for. Um, but Having that very thin wrapper, I, I mean, I would love for us to have, you know, a, a jQuery like wrapper um, to be able to increase the developer ergonomics. And that is one of the things that we're trying to work on with Enhance is we have, um, besides the server side rendering bit, we have the client side bit that's being worked on to do the progressive enhancement. And that will make the, the writing of the web components, the um, talking to the backend store a lot easier. Um, so possibly we have the solution for that, but I will be happily using anybody else's solution that comes up with that as well. Um, but yeah, anything, I mean, anything that we can do to reduce the amount of JavaScript uh, on the client is going to make things way more performant. Um, and if I can, you know, get my kind of performance budget so that I, I'm going to keep that JavaScript under 200 kilobytes for the entire application, that would just be amazing. Uh, and with some of the frameworks these days that your hello world already starts out with 90 kilobytes of JavaScript. And it's like, why do we need 90 kilobytes of JavaScript to put hello world on the screen? That, that seems like too much to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think those frameworks say that because when hello world becomes eBay, it still needs, you know, that 90k of, of of core library to run the larger site too. But but you're right. I mean, I, this is kind of goes back to that idea of the right tool for the right job. Like we're using sometimes very powerful tools. Again, I think in a lot of cases for developer experience. You know, and this goes back to kind of what you've been talking about. You know, this era of single page applications, in my opinion, the expansion of JavaScript isn't just due to sort of a, a gluttony or laziness on the, on the part of developers. Not that you're saying that, but you know, I've heard it said of people. Um, and, but rather, I think an expansion of our industry to people that had never written websites before that suddenly felt empowered to build incredibly complicated websites and businesses on top of those websites uh, with these tools. And I think that'll be the lesson I hope we take back with us as we develop these server-side rendering things. And I think you see it in Enhance, and I'm sure you talk about it every single day, which is to say, how can we make sure that as we swing back and we start talking about the sites we can build without JavaScript, um, that people get that education? Because there is so much um, to learn. And I think, you know, there've been other tools out there like Google's AMP, which attempted to kind of do some of this uh, to, to reduce some of the framework dependence, but, but but add in a lot of the ergonomics of like adding in accessibility and performance by default. And that has its own set of trade-offs. Um, but, but hopefully, you know, tools like this will be able to help those same developers that have onboarded maybe wean themselves without getting confused at all the new concepts they've suddenly been exposed to and have to learn uh, in order to rebuild the thing that, you know, from their perspective kind of already works even you know, if it's not working for everybody. Yeah, and there's a lot of good points you brought up there and I'm gonna to try to address some of them, but we've, we've definitely done uh, a lot of folks a disservice of teaching them how to build with frameworks instead of building uh, with fundamentals first. Uh, they just haven't been exposed to it. And I don't blame them if they're uh, reaching for the framework that they know because they have a job to do and they need to hit their deadlines and it makes perfect sense that they're going to use the tool that they're very familiar with. Um, but to anybody out there that hasn't built a website with HTML as the starting point, they should really give it a try because they'll be pleasantly surprised on what they can actually do. Um, for instance, if you need to stand up a site that's going to collect uh, email addresses for a signup form, it's like, guess what, folks, you, you don't need React and React Query and React Forms or Formic or whatever to do that. Um, you need HTML and some CSS and just some sort of backend that you can store that email address in. Um, so I would 
really love for people to be able to to try that out. Um, it could be Enhance, it could be Remix or Levity, whatever. Just just give it a shot or just start with a plain old HTML file. Um, but also, you mentioned accessibility briefly there. And one of the things when you're starting with an HTML first approach, you're, you're starting with a more accessible mindset. Uh, if you're building semantic HTML, it's going to be accessible kind of by default. And a lot of people don't really think of accessibility, um, but it behooves you to do it because it, one, I, I can't tell you how to, to care for other people, but you should. Uh, but two, if you're selling your website or you're doing business with various governments and other organizations, uh, you have to follow uh, some accessibility guidelines. So it makes sense for you to build the most accessible uh, product. And if you want to get personal about it, at some point in time, you will have an accessibility issue because we all get older and we, you know, our hearing starts to go, our vision starts to go. We have um, motor uh, issues as well. So, you know, at some point in time, it, this, this will become important to you. So maybe start building it now so <laughs> that when you get older, it already works for you. And then, of course, there's, you know, times where people are temporarily uh like ably challenged, you know, you may break your leg, you may break your arm. Uh, there may be issues that you, you run into. You could have LASIK surgery and not have uh, use of one of your eyes. And that'll really, you know, kind of just put it in your face to say like, oh yeah, I should have cared about accessibility when I was building these things ahead of time. Yeah. You can be like me, spill a glass of water on your mouse, short it out and then have to use your keyboard to try and order a replacement. And you will suddenly realize how difficult the web is to use by the keyboard for most everybody. Yeah, it's great when you're uh, when your mouse, you realize, oh, I didn't charge it. And there's no way for me to plug it in and charge it at the same time. And you're kind of hosed and you're like, well, maybe I'll just take a walk for a half an hour while that thing's charging. I'm curious if there's any platform features coming up that you think are really important or interesting or exciting for functional web apps. I mean, to me, one of the ones I've had my eye on for quite a bit and I'm super excited about is the page transitions API. Uh, anything to do with, you know, taking more of the trade-offs in, in the favor of, of spas and, and adding that behavior to the platform just to give people more options of things they can build without uh, necessarily needing JavaScript. Well, you would need JavaScript, but without needing frameworks. I'm, I think that's super exciting. Are there any others that you have an eye on that you think are really uh, huge deals for, for functional web apps? Yeah, I'm gonna, I'll answer that. You just reminded me of the other thing I wanted to bring up, and that's the single page applications. And as somebody who worked in the, the mobile web on Apache Cordova, Adobe PhoneGap, and you know, back when spas were, were first happening, uh, you know, I take partial responsibility for what we've we've done to the industry. Um, spas were a fantastic idea, but they were supposed to be for mobile applications. The fact that we kind of overcompensated and spawed everything, <laughs> that was a bad idea. Um, Multi-page applications are great. Uh, they work fantastic. And, you know, I'd love to see some of these frameworks, you know, flipping back to MPAs as well. Um, but I just have to plus one, what you said. Yeah, I am the page transition API is super important going forward to be able to uh, give you that kind of user experience that makes the multi-page application look like a single page application. And that is going to be just like a game changer for folks. Um, the other thing that I would love to see adopted across the board is, 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 I, I know that doesn't make a lot of sense, um, but you know, we have some issues around um, what it, one of the reasons I said friends don't let friends use the shadow DOM is when you're building an HTML form and you're putting web components which use the shadow DOM into your form, uh, then you lose some of that platform abilities. Like when you hit the enter key, the submit button is automatically uh, activated. So if you're using a web component with shadow DOM, that behavior doesn't exist because it's not actually a button. It's your, it's my button or my submit button or whatever you've called your, your components. Uh, but being able to say, you know, you open your tag button is, and then you give it the name of your web component so that this button should look and act uh, like the web component that I've defined, 
but also inherit from the default platform's capabilities of a button. So that works on most platforms, and it doesn't work on Safari uh, because Apple seems to be very opposed to implementing that. And I would love to see that changed uh, because that would uh, get around some of the uh, the issues with the Shadow DOM, and it would just uh, make programming uh, a lot of these web components easier because you can take a, a advantage of the the key. Uh, features of like a button or an input text field without having to to wrap it or recreate some of that functionality. That's that's really exciting too. I'm actually just sitting here now thinking of what what the possibilities would be with with such a feature. So yeah, that that is actually really exciting. Yeah. So instead of basing all of your web components just off the HTML element class, you'd be able to base your web components off the HTML button class or the HTML input class and just kind of enhance oh, things from there. Oh, it's such a game changer. Yeah, yeah it's such a game yeah. changer. Really. And and again, Apple seen and I I I forget what their um, opposition to that is, but other you know firefox has it chrome has it uh, i believe uh, edge has it so uh, all the other uh, browser vendors seem to be okay with it but apple um once again won't let us have nice things <laughs> well we're very rapidly approaching the end of our conversation but i would be remiss if i didn't ask you about um your amazing habit of reading so i i don't know what your tallies were for 2022 um, or, or even throughout 2021, but I know you had a, a pretty prolific blog uh, at the beginning of 2021 about reading. I think the number was like 149 books in 2020. Now, we, we might have been uh, had a lot of time on our hands that year for reasons I think we're all aware <laughs> of. But, you know, I guess rather than asking you why, the question that I was most curious about is how do you find enough books to keep this engine going, um, do do you just do you just peruse anything that was just released? Like, uh, do you do you have a lot of sources to get recommendations? Like, where do you find all these books? Rob, they they just keep writing good new books. It's not that hard <laughs> to find them. Um, so yeah, I am a prolific reader. Um, I last year I I was over 140 books. This year I'm at 115 right now. Um, I think I think for me it's just. I am always, anytime I'm on Twitter and I see somebody recommend a book, like I'll, I'll just bookmark that and go back and, and research it a little bit and check out whether or not this would be something that I'm interested in. Uh, I just saw today, uh, Sarah Drasner, her book on engineering management is released. So I just ran off to my uh, local bookstore and pre-ordered it from them. So I'm very excited ab about that coming in. Um, yeah. But Huge fan yeah. of engineering management for the rest of us, I think it's yes. called. That's but, that is uh, what it's called. Thanks for the reminder. Uh, but yeah, I have just they're always writing good new books, and there's there's no um, shortage of recommendations out there. And in fact, if anybody wants uh, recommendations on book, please just hit me up. Uh, I am a human Goodreads. Um, I again, I read way too much, uh, but um, yeah, uh, yeah. If there's is anything in science fiction, fantasy, technology, noir, uh, anything, I am I am your person to come to to uh, to get Rex. Uh, he's not lying. I was researching for this podcast, and I already have three books on the way from recommendations <laughs> that sounded really interesting. So uh, definitely follow him on Twitter uh, for all of that. Now you have to answer honestly: Are are you uh, a paperback, hardcover, Audible? Uh, are you are you a tablet reader? Like all of the above like how do you vary this up yeah uh it's all of the above so i have um a rule just to always be reading uh i haven't listened to terrestrial radio in i don't know like eight ten years at this point in time um i think um audiobooks are amazing uh, i don't generally listen to nonfiction books uh in in an audio format, but you know, those kind of popcorn novels, uh, you know, I'll have them on in the car when I'm, you know, driving places. And I, I think that's a lot better use of my time and my entertainment, uh, than listening to, you know, K 95 FM in the morning. It's like, <laughs> like, I'm sorry. I just, I can't, I just can't do that anymore. Um, but then I, I love, uh, getting technical books in either the hardcover or paperback format because I will find myself and, and I think I showed you earlier this, you know, Charles Petzold's code. And I have like little stickies in there as I come across, you know, interesting bits that I'll, I'll want to mark up. And then, you know, I 
find the best way that I could relax and shut my brain off before I go to sleep is just by grabbing my Kindle and reading a few pages in whatever ebook that I'm, I'm interested in at that point in time. So at any given time, I probably have three books on the go and it's just all of the, the different formats, whether it's audio, ebook or paperback. Now, I know this is maybe way too spicy of a question for the last question in a podcast, but there's been a lot of you know, words written about the differences in whether people should be consuming books or blogs or Twitter or, you know, tech talks and videos and conference talks and things of that nature. Do, do you also read those or do you try to stick pretty much to just uh, books? Um, do, do, you, do you take a side in this battle of what is the right amount of content or is there like a content food pyramid where, you know, books is the base and, you know, Twitter is like the tip to be used sparingly or, you know, how do you feel on how people that are listening Maybe people that are new and trying to get into the industry are trying to figure out how to balance their content, you know, the time they spend consuming content. Yeah, that's a really good question. And there was a book that I read a number of years ago. Uh, it's called The Information Diet. And the key takeaway from that book is that every so often you should be uh, just kind of auditing the sources, your input sources, whether they be Twitter or Facebook or YouTube channels, and just really saying, is this giving me high quality information? Is this beneficial to me? And if it isn't, you should unsubscribe from that or just you know stop paying attention to it uh, because there are so many wonderful sources of information out there that are high quality and informative and you should be focusing on those instead of just endlessly scrolling through Twitter, which, you know, I am uh, a victim of as well. I've definitely uh, found myself like trying to get to the end of Twitter and, and you never really do. Um, so there's there's lots of good places that you can get information and every you know six months to a year you should at least audit those things and say like oh is this is this still giving me benefit and when it comes to like what format you should be taking things in um it it really depends like i'll give you the senior engineering answer it's like it depends and it's like I don't know how you best learn. You may best learn by reading a super long in-depth blog post or reading a book. Uh, you may be a lot better at watching a short video or TikTok, um, but it's whatever works for you. You have to decide that for yourself, uh, but just make sure that you're consuming high quality content. And that's the only recommendation I can give in that situation. Now, I think I know the answer to this, but some people listening will hear that you read 115 books this year and believe that that was 115 books about JavaScript. Um, <laughs> and so I was wondering if you could make a last pitch uh, to a variety of reading. For example, I went on a long road trip and one of the books I found absolutely fascinating for a bunch of reasons we do not have time to get into was the Alexander Hamilton biography uh, that, the, that the musical was based off of. It's like 36 hours to listen to this whole thing. But it was absolutely amazing. I was riveted to this biography. Um, so were those 115 books all about JavaScript or tech in specific? And if not, do you have a pitch for people who who don't read outside of the, the tech industry? Yeah, they, they definitely were not all focused on JavaScript. Um, I think I would go absolutely mad if the only thing I did was uh, write JavaScript and read about JavaScript all the time. Um, I understand that not everybody likes to read as much as I do. So uh, in your limited amount of time that you have for reading, if you just want to focus on a, a singular topic, that's great. I'm not going to shame you for that. But there are lots of wonderful uh, books out there. Uh, biographies are absolutely fantastic. Now, if you're stuck in the tech side of things and you're like, oh, I want to kind of branch out, I would say go read Steve Jobs by Walter Igobson. I can never pronounce his name correctly. And if you really enjoy that book, uh, then you can move over to his one on Leonardo da Vinci, which is also another fantastic biography that is uh, incredibly well-written. And that can kind of like move you, you know, from tech to a biography and then into like art history and other, you know, different topics that you could potentially get interested in. Um, I myself, I'm not an economist, but I love reading about behavioral economics. Um, one of the books I read this year was Misbehaving, uh, which was kind of the, the history of behavioral economics. Um, but if you'd like to think about thinking, uh, there's one by Daniel Kahneman. It's called Thinking Fast and Slow. Uh, and that is a just an absolute five-star banger of a book. Um, so there are really great things to read. And if you're able to go 
and read things outside of your outside of tech, outside of your core competency. And then you can synergize how those things can be brought into tech to be brought into uh, what you're doing that can help you like expand your thinking and, and make improvements. Because I think when it comes to innovation, one of the, the biggest ways of innovation is people from like two opposite ends of the spectrum getting together and seeing how they can synergize those ideas into something uh, even better. Well, that is a very inspiring and exciting place uh, to wrap up this conversation for today. Believe it or not, it has already been an hour. So that is it for us today. I guess as we close out, Simon, do you want to let people know where they can find you and how they can get involved if they were interested in learning more about Enhance? Sure thing. If you're looking for me, uh, you can find me on pretty much any social media platform at McDonnest. That's M-A-C-D-O-N-S-T. And that was my Unix user ID and university. And I just can find it on every social media platform because nobody wants it, which is great by me. And if you're interested about Enhance, uh, just direct your browser to enhance.dev uh, and you'll find out all about our, um, our exciting new HTML first platform. Uh, there'll be links there to our Twitter account as well as our Discord. Uh, so please reach out to us on any of those platforms and we'd love to continue the conversation. Great. And that's exactly right. So that'll be it for us today. Thank you so much for listening to this Modern Web Podcast. Thank you to our guest, Simon. As always, and as Simon just informed you, the conversation does not stop here. So as you heard, you can find Simon on Twitter at MacDonST. So that's M-A-C-D-O-N-S-T. You can find me online at RoboCell. As for the podcast, you can find us online at moderndotweb.com or on Twitter at modern.web. Thank you, everybody, and we hope to see you next time. Cheers. This podcast is sponsored by this.labs, a framework agnostic consultancy that specializes in JavaScript. You can find them at this.co slash labs. That's T-H-I-S-D-O-T dot C-O slash labs. For all of your friends and you